Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. Hey, Jane Lee here, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land. Today, we're bringing you an episode from Guardian Australia's Australian Politics podcast. As we approach the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament in just a couple of weeks, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese sat down for an in-depth interview with political editor Catherine Murphy. They discussed the final weeks of the campaign and whether the highly divisive nature of the public debate on The Voice has been worth it. There was no attempt to engage even in the process. There was just a determination to be a part of what has been a fear campaign based upon a misinformation and based upon what in some cases they know is just not right. Hello, lovely potters. Welcome to the show. I'm Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia, and my guest this week is the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. We sat down earlier in the week while he was in Canberra for a conversation about the voice to Parliament and what comes next for the government after the looming referendum. I'm very grateful he made the time. Anthony Albanese, welcome to the pod. Good to be with you, Catherine. So uh, I want to start uh, with the last time we spoke on the podcast which was, uh, I think, February or March, which feels, I don't know about you, but feels like several lifetimes ago. Feels like ago. a long time ago. Yeah, feels like several lifetimes ago, right? So uh, at that point, I asked you, uh, we were talking about The Voice back then. So this was before Peter Dutton had a position. I asked you if, in your judgment, it looked too hard to succeed because there's no bipartisanship you know, rancor around it made it impossible, would you stop the referendum? You said to me at that time that would be like forfeiting a grand final, basically, because you were too scared to go on the field. So a lot of water under the bridge since then. Obviously, you have proceeded, even though the campaign has got more and more rancorous and there has been no bipartisanship. Does it still feel like a good decision to you? It's the right decision because, as I said in February or March, if if you don't run on the field, you can't make change. You, you can't succeed. You have to have the courage of your convictions to be prepared to put forward the argument to give the Australian people the opportunity to vote in the referendum, which they will, on October 14. And... The consequences of not holding a referendum are the same as a no vote. Things stay the same. Yeah, but, but, but do you actually think that's right, that, that if we had not had this process, if you'd stepped away three months ago or, you know, pick a, pick a point on the calendar, if we hadn't got to this point, do you actually think it's the same result? Because it's sort of like the whole race relations debate is arrayed before us every day of the week now. Do you actually think that these two things are the same? The outcome is the same in that you don't get constitutional recognition without a vote. You don't get an enshrined voice to parliament without a vote. Things just stay the same. And ironically, perhaps, Peter Dutton at one stage put the same view to me in one of the meetings that we had and said, oh, well, if you put it off till next term or what would a delay mean? It would mean saying to the Tom Carmers and Pat Andersons and uh, Noel Pearsons and people who have been a part of this for a lot longer than I have been, who've given in some cases certainly directly about this question of a constitutionally enshrined voice for more than a decade, you're saying to them, just wait a few years more. And remember that in 2019, 
the government said there'd be a referendum, there'd be some advance. In 2016, the government said there'd be a referendum and some advance. Most of the process leading up to the Uluru Statement from the Heart occurred by definition, under the former government. And after that, they'd had the Karma Langton report, they'd had the Joint Parliamentary Committee chaired by Pat Dodson and uh, Julian Lisa. Uh, at what point do you actually have a vote or do you just have a process talking about having a vote? Mm. Endlessly. Uh, endlessly. But just just two ticks, hang on. Like you, you said Peter Dutton said to you in a meeting what if did he say? What if we delay it? Or well, would you be would you be prepared to? You know, are you going to delay this? Delay it, but to, for what end? That well, that that that's not clear. That that's the point. Uh, the point I made uh, to him, and I've made publicly as well, is were we going to wait until there was uh, an absolute consensus? Like we tried to get bipartisanship when Julian Lisa was appointed as Shadow Minister for Indigenous Affairs and Shadow Attorney-General. He is someone who's been involved in this process since at least 2012, very intimately involved uh, with his legal expertise. That was a sign, I would have thought, that the Liberal Party was serious Mm. about advancing this. Contrary, notwithstanding all of Peter Dutton's history, walking out on the apology that occurred in 2008, one would have thought that that was a, a sign that it was possible to get agreement. Of course, we know that we had the Aston by-election and the week afterwards, Peter Dutton returned to what he'd been urged to do by some of his party into the wrecker, into the negative uh, just opposing things, seeing this through a political prism of uh, opportunism rather than an opportunity to actually do, yeah, do something, uh, something positive. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he, he chose to do that. That was a decision for him. Uh, but the idea that I could say to Indigenous people, the sort of leaders who are involved in the referendum work group, we'll just hold on, we'll just wait until everyone, everyone agrees. all agreed. Or, or, or um, more fanciful, I think, is um, my government, even though we were elected with a clear and unequivocal commitment to hold a referendum, a statement that I declared, of course, a number of times, um, probably many dozens of times in the lead up to the 21st of May 2022 election. And then a statement I declared reaffirmed on the night of that election uh, that I would walk away from that commitment, but oh, it's okay because trust us next time when we get elected again, will do something or wait for Peter Dutton to become Prime Minister and he's going to advance reconciliation and advance this cause. Mm. You had to, I think, in my view, I have taken my commitments I took to the election seriously. Uh, I've been going through, uh, doing my best to to tick them off. Uh, This is a serious one. And bear in mind as well, uh, the enormous support and goodwill which is out there from faith groups, sporting organisations, business groups, local community-based groups, and most importantly, Indigenous people themselves. There isn't one Indigenous leader in the country who's supporting a yes case, which is over 80% of Indigenous people, who has come to me and said, I think we need to fix uh, some of the dates or we need to change something, mm. and and indeed at Gama, uh, Jawa, uh, Unipingu, and the leadership uh, there of northeast Arnhem Land presented me with uh, the, the spear and woomera that uh, you passed as you came into this office mm. saying, stay strong. Mm. And it was presented to me by a young Indigenous boy as a sign that this was about future generations. And one of the things that is occurring, I mean, there, 
it's occurring on a range of levels. There are, of course, some terrible things being said yep. and hurt being felt. Uh, you have, I saw a pamphlet today about the Jewish conspiracy behind the Indigenous constitutional recognition that was just extraordinary mm. and hateful. Mm. That is occurring. At the same time, Australians are talking like never before about the gap that's there in life expectancy, about the fact that an Indigenous young male has a greater chance of going to jail than university, about health issues, about housing, about listening. And, and that process in itself is something that, that I believe is positive. Mm. The fact that we are talking about Indigenous disadvantage, not on the fringes, but on the front pages of newspapers. As a central dialogue. But, but obviously, uh, you know, there's already, there's already a history war that started. It's already started about who's lost the referendum. We haven't even voted yet, but we're already having a draft of the history war of who who did what or didn't do what or didn't put what in the public domain at what time. You know, it's already started. You'll be aware of it. In the event this vote is lost, there will be Liberals who will say it was lost because Anthony Albanese had an opportunity to narrow the scope of the voice. If it had just been a voice to parliament, more of us would have supported it. It was the voice to the executive that made us all fall out of the cart. There will be that. Uh, there will be, uh, you know, this whole question of detail is already being litigated. That was a decision you made. You know, would it have been better to put an exposure draft before the people? Would that have stopped the sort of weaponization of detail? Look, I know you will have had these thoughts. So, do you think an exposure draft might have helped? Do you think some sort of more, I don't know, inclusive position towards the Liberals would have helped? We have been inclusive. We had a parliamentary committee established. I set out a timetable last year for legislation being developed in March, draft legislation, said when the timetable would be, said there'd be a parliamentary inquiry said there'd be then a determination in June and then said in the last quarter of this year there would be a vote. So set out a very clear timetable. Peter Dutton got to address the referendum working group mm. twice on two occasions. I met with him seven times. There were no amendments moved and voted on in the House of Representatives or the Senate on any of the wording. The wording is very clear. Mm. The legal opinion is very clear. And, and, and that's the detail. It, it's there mm. and it's up to the parliament. Of course. Up to, to the parliament, yeah. just like any other part of the constitution, to do the, the detail. Mm. Uh, we don't have in the constitution how much funding how many Canberra North or, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah. public school is going to get or we don't have... Uh, that level in there, I mean, it, it, it's just extraordinary. Mm. And the important thing about the wording as well is that the idea of a voice is listening to Indigenous Australians, that at the first step you would ignore what Indigenous Australians were saying. And what they are saying is that they want a constitutionally enshrined voice. Mm. So the real argument has been if there is one, has been not over whether constitutional recognition should happen or not because they say it should happen. Yeah. It's not over whether there should be a legislative voice or not because they say that should happen as well. Yeah. It's whether that legislative voice should be enshrined in the Constitution. The Constitution. Yeah. And the reason why Indigenous Australians want that is they want the security of there being a body that it can't be dismissed on a whim of a government at a time in order to secure political advantage. Yeah, so, I mean, in so essence... So it's what, that experience yeah, it's, but that what comes you, from. What you're saying is that where the Liberals would have asked you to compromise, uh, support for the proposition from the Indigenous leadership wouldn't have allowed the compromise. I mean, it's you're saying something broader than that. Well, Indigenous I Australians, I think, have compromised incredibly. Mm. This is a very modest proposal being put forward. 
they have compromised. They have been prepared to engage and the, the difference in the words from the draft words that I released at Gama last year, the word may give advice, the word including in the third part, so legislation over the functioning of the voice will be over the composition, procedures, etc. Yep. but including is an important word mm. that was put in there as well. Mm. Uh, so uh, there has been compromise in order to try to secure support. But let's be clear, Peter Dutton just after the Aston by-election, and there's no accident that that occurred, called a special party room meeting, declared uh, support at that meeting and the bit of paper that went around said there would be a national voice, then did a press conference and, and changed the decision almost or didn't accurately depict what, what the party room members thought they were doing. And Peter Dutton clearly made a decision that his party room wouldn't have supported a yes proposition yeah. or even a neutral proposition. And that reflects a change in the Liberal Party that's occurred. Where has Simon Birmingham and some of the moderates been on this issue? The Liberal Party that was here when I came here in 1996 had your Petro Giorgios and a range of people. Now, to their credit, you have had Julian Lisa show enormous courage, Bridget Archer, and in the Liberal Party organisation, you have the Yes campaign being run in part by pretty key Liberal Party operatives, Tony Nutt, former National Director, State Director of the Liberal Party, John Howard's former Chief of Staff, Mark Texter uh, doing the polling, who did the polling and uh, came up with a range of the slogans and ideas behind Tony Abbott's election victory in 2013. The truth is that the Liberal Party uh, under Peter Dutton has continued the shift to the right that has occurred in recent times and has engaged in questions being asked in the parliament where Paul Fletcher, another of uh, someone who would be characterised by some as a moderate, has sat there asking or suggesting that a, a voice to parliament is going to somehow influence the Reserve Bank on interest rates. So, uh, now, they know that that's absurd. They have been prepared, though, uh, to go down that road and uh, I think that is uh, unfortunate uh, that that has occurred uh, but it is uh, characteristic of where the Liberal Party has been prepared to go uh, on this issue in spite of the statements that were made for a long period of time when they were in government about goodwill and that's why people like Ken Wyatt, who was uh, the Indigenous Affairs Minister in the Morrison government, was part of the referendum working group and has now, of course, resigned from the Liberal Party mm. uh, over this issue. So you think basically it was just going to be after Aston, it was a death match. It, 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 it didn't matter what you did. It was going to be a death match. Couldn't well, there, there, there was no no attempt to uh, engage even in the process. There were no amendments. There was uh, just a determination to be a part of what has been a fear campaign based upon uh, misinformation and based upon what in some cases they know is just not right. Mm. And at the same time, uh, the Yes campaign have continued uh, to run a positive campaign about what this means. I think the difference between the rallies that were held last Saturday for the No campaign and with some of the extraordinary messages and the positivity of the Yes rallies the weekend before were there for 
all to see. I want to pick up that because uh, in terms of the messaging now, obviously you're the Prime Minister of the country, you will be devoting some thought to what happens in the immediate aftermath of the referendum result because to my observation, an act of leadership is going to be required in the event of either result because the genie has been let out of the bottle in many, many respects, truth, racism, all kinds of stuff we've seen over the last little bit. So I want to just road test a couple of scenarios with you. So in the event that Australians, that the polls are all wrong and Australians are about to vote yes, uh, you know, with the requisite majorities and the result is declared for yes, given that we've had weeks, months of what I would describe as Trumpian red hat tactics, orchestrated tactics on the part of the no campaign and in, and injected into the discourse. Are you concerned in the event, yes, wins, that we might go, we might pitch over into the next phase of this, which is that we people start talking about stolen referendum results or uh, put some question mark over the integrity of institutions? Because to me, listening to the the tenor of the debate, that's, that seems possible to me. Is this something you've thought about? Well, I, I think that a yes result will be unifying. I go back to other debates that have been held over marriage equality, over the apology, and when a positive affirmation was made, uh, the country moved on pretty quickly, mm. pretty quickly. And uh, I think that I've already foreshadowed, as I did uh, way back in March with Peter Dutton and David Littleproud. I spoke to them about this is after they declared they would support no. Mm. I said to them I would want a joint parliamentary committee, bipartisan. I've reaffirmed that I would want to see a joint chairs, mm. someone from the Labor Party, someone from the coalition to be worked through and that would work through the legislation and people would see then, I think, pretty quickly the uh, non-legitimacy of the, the fear campaign. So mm. I think it will be uh, incredibly positive for the nation yeah. no, no, if I... that occurs. Yeah. And, and I think overwhelmingly... Look, there are, are some people in Australia, like around the world, impacted by social media and uh, engaged in uh, rhetorical positions, you know, over the United Nations World Economic Forum conspiracies uh, that are there. That's a fact of life, but it's a minority. And uh, the No campaign itself is relying upon people not having information. Uh, the whole main slogan they're using isn't about find out. Yeah. It's don't, don't find yeah, out. Don't find out. It's, yeah. uh, it, it, it's almost uh, applauding. Uh, not being informed is what it's doing. But are you worried yeah. about that? I mean, because I think you and I are looking at the same landscape. No, because at I the, think those, the, you're not worried about the, it. those people will move on very quickly in terms of people who have examined. I, I think that people who have a look at the question, think about it. When people do that, uh, they vote yes. Not everyone, and some people can look at the same things and come to different mm. conclusions, and that's fine. Mm. But overwhelmingly. Uh, the no campaign by its own declaration is not relying upon that. It's relying upon the opposite. Yeah, but I can see your architecture for drawing together, moving on uh, in the event of a yes uh, of, a, of a yes vote, and that was my question, what happens? But what's the flip side of that? Uh, because we've obviously seen it's sort of like a slow-moving thing in, in, in my head. It's kind of like we saw these forces basically start to come to the fore around the pandemic. In this country, it's a bit different in America, but we've we've seen that same, the language about elites, institutions being rigged, all of this stuff sort of birthed during the pandemic, 
there's been an accelerant now with the referendum result. Um, Often often with media commentators with their own TV programs, weekly columns speaking about no, sure. them not having a, a, a say. And, but but uh, we, you're not no, really worried about it, With though. no irony whatsoever. No. Well, it's there. It's an element. But I have faith in Australians' uh, common sense that if a yes vote is carried, I think overwhelmingly the nation will move on pretty quickly you know, one of the ironies of this debate has been Peter Dutton trying to say that the government is, you know, only focused on this and then going into question time every day and asking about nothing but this. Mm. Uh, at the same time as yesterday we released an employment white paper, today I uh, opened an urgent care clinic in South Australia I've just come from a disaster preparedness summit with every state government, local government, emergency services, uh, non-government organisations together here, summit here in Canberra. Tomorrow, I have a range of other events for the rest of the week. Uh, Yesterday in Wyala, we turned off uh, the coking ovens to produce steel Mm. and that transition uh, to Green Steel is underway there in Wyala, an incredibly exciting prospect. So we're doing the full range of government activity, plus we're doing as as well, giving people the opportunity to vote in the referendum. I think that a yes vote will see us continue to govern across the range of economic environmental, social issues. But on this, there'll be a parliamentary committee. It will continue to do its work. It won't be as high profile, obviously, after the referendum. But I do think that there will be, from this point on, there will be more of a focus on Indigenous disadvantage. Regardless of the result, you think? I I, I think there will be, yes. I, I think there has been... Because conventional wisdom would be, if if this fails, if the polls are right and this fails, that that, that completely screws the reconciliation agenda for years to come. Yeah, what does it do? Does it strand truth-telling? Does it strand treaty? Does it strand, you know, a debate that you have in the back of your mind about Australia becoming a republic? The conventional wisdom would be a no vote just cruels all that. Well, I, I think that the awareness and consciousness of Indigenous affairs has been raised to the point uh, whereby, uh, you know, you'll never again have, I don't believe, a situation where you you won't have uh, Indigenous affairs uh, raised uh, on the floor of the parliament. And for a long period of time, you know, it wasn't front and centre of issues. But will uh, it be worth it, though? I mean, in terms of just obviously... A no, a no vote, and I'm not presupposing that. But a, a no vote is obviously it's not an abstraction for First no, Nations people. It'll be, it will be, it doesn't actually bear thinking about. No, it it will be, it will be disappointing. It'll, well, it'll be devastating. Won't um, it? Won't it? Seriously. Indigenous people. Someone said to me, you know, I, I've suffered so much in my life. What we're going through here is just you know, what uh, What we've copped, you know, uh, I- Indigenous Australians, for them, racism isn't something that they encounter is, is, beyond, their, is beyond their comprehension, mm. you know. So one of the things that, that there has been some greater evidence of it, but, you know, structural disadvantage is there. The resilience is there as well. Indigenous people, uh, as as I said, uh, I think earlier in this interview, there's one person who has said to me, you know, well, maybe, maybe we should wait. Maybe we should just press the pause button. I mean, I've had it put to me by uh, by some commentators uh, that uh, none of them indigenous. Uh, that that's the case. Oh, wait until the economy is looking better. Wait mm. until, and and the time frame for the referendum. Bear this in mind: uh, was uh, 
very consciously one of the few times in our lifetime that I can remember where you can find a year without an election in Australia. Mm. We have nine levels of government. They have either three or four-year terms. By definition, there's usually at least two elections every year and uh, often more. Mm. Uh, But we're in this period where we don't, where there was some clean air. And uh, that was an attempt as well to depoliticise. That was a conscious decision. Uh, that was made that the time was right. Mm. You know, the idea, I'll put it off till next year, that you do it in the middle of when there's state or territory elections in the second half of next year, mm. to me, would not make much sense. So Let's just one more. I want to get on to some other things, but let's just one more on The Voice, just on this in this mi- misinformation prism. Sounds like you're less worried about, you know, what might happen uh, than I am, um, but uh, I'm interested. I'm an optimist, Catherine. Well, yes, yes, that is that is very true. But is the government concerned about, aware of, monitoring the prospect? Because anybody listening to the pod uh, who's on social media will be aware of the sludge of stuff that is around that's referendum adjacent. Um, all kinds of. We put additional funding. In the budget, you might recall, for mental health, for Indigenous Australians. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we were conscious yeah, that this, of that yes. because we had the feedback. No, of course. But this is, this, is a, this is another question. Obviously, during when experts study mis- and misinformation and disinformation around the world, when state actors get involved in misinformation and disinformation. It's during times in democracies of high polarisation. We've seen this in the past. We saw it in the US election cycle. Is the government concerned or monitoring or cognisant of the fact that some of some of what we see on social media is not so much messaging by the no campaign, but is orchestrated interference in a democratic process in Australia. I'm I'm not asking this because I've got evidence. I'm asking the guy who would have the evidence if it was happening. Well, if I did, I probably wouldn't be talking about it on the podcast. Is it Um, it a risk? Of course, foreign interference in political processes is a risk and it's something that we're conscious of. And, you know, I don't want to uh, start up other theories unnecessarily. But of course, that's something that the agency, not about this specifically, mm. but in general, mm. our uh, agencies uh, monitor uh, these matters uh, as a matter of course, because we know that it has occurred and we know that it can undermine our own democratic processes. But overwhelmingly here in Australia, I mean, our democratic processes do function very well. As we speak, there are remote polling booths. There are people largely in Indigenous communities voting as we speak, and and that is really important. And another factor, of course, is that there have never been more Indigenous Australians and as a percentage on the roll, Mm. the highest enrolment ever. Um, There was... uh, not, not the greatest attempt to ensure Indigenous Australians were enrolled under the former government with some of the cuts to AEC resources out there, but uh, a record number of Australians have enrolled as well, including young people, and uh, I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing that people vote regardless of whether they're voting yes or no. Mm, okay, let's look forward. It's sort I, of- I'll make one more point, if I can, on The Voice, which is that something that Noel Pearson speaks about, which is very powerful, is that what Indigenous Australians are asking for is to be listened to, is to have the opportunity to have an input. And that's with the purpose of getting better outcomes, uh, which uh, implies that governments will say, yes, that's a good idea because it only has the power of its ideas, it can't enforce it. But with that will come greater responsibility as well. And that's why, in in part, this is uh, a proposition that conservatives should have been able to support because I believe that it will result in better fiscal outcomes, more efficiency, to put it in in those terms. Mm. Uh, Because if you, instead of money going to areas that bureaucrats in Canberra think it should go to, if you actually consult people 
and you will get a far more effective outcome. We saw that during the pandemic mm. when at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember sitting in, in briefings here from health officials, there was a real fear about a devastating impact amongst Indigenous communities yeah. and it had a bad impact. I don't want to underplay it. But at one stage, there was a fear that the impact would be much, much greater. And when that turned around was when people actually sat down and talked with the communities. I mean, who knew if you asked people? But that's when you got the vaccination rates up. That's when you got better health care, better information out there when people were actually empowered. And that's why this is some of the opposition to this is quite disappointing mm. and why someone like Julian Lisa or Tony Nutt or, or others who are involved in the campaign, Dominic Perrottet, people who were not part of, they're not part of the progressive wing of the Liberal Party. Chris Kenny has been an extraordinary advocate just putting the conservative case uh, for uh, why a yes vote is necessary. Let's look forward. Obviously, we've had the opening phase of the government has been uh, events, as it always is, and the sort of uh, the program of uh, implementing your election promises, legislating your commitments, etc. cetera. Uh, I've been away for a while, coming back. Uh, it seems to me that we're sort of, t we're towards the end of that now. I'll just call that Act 1 for want of a better term, right? We're sort of towards the end of that. Now, looking ahead, uh, we're almost in another election cycle, which, you know, hooray! <laughs> Sorry. No, but it's just like, obviously, there's 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 much more governing to do, but we're, we're heading into basically the... There have been attempts but, <laughs> to change the constitution for four-year no, terms, no, no, of I course. No, I know, I know, which would be actually a good idea, but the, the Senate's a problem. Anyway, let's not, well, unless, unless you're going to do it, are you going to do it? No, he's um, looking at me. He's I, like, I, "Are you mad?" I, I, no, okay, <laughs> let's keep talking. Okay, so uh, so Act Two is before us. Um, uh, it's a bit mysterious to me what Act Two is. What is Act Two? Act Two is the implementation of our policies first. So what we've done, for example, is legislate for forty three percent by twenty thirty, net zero by twenty fifty. Act two isn't just getting the legislation the headline, it's how do you deliver that through yep. the economy. Well, I'm glad you actually raised this because I was going to, this is something I was going to ask you about in terms of Act two. Uh, there is quite a bit of chat around the place about, well, I mean, it's sort of silly to describe it in these terms because if this is the way you go, you will describe it in your own terms, but a, an Inflation Reduction Act type program, like a Biden-esque type program in Australia, which could bring together, you know, obviously the economies at a particular point, the transition to low emissions is at a particular point. There is chat around the place that your thinking is going in that direction. Is well, that so, some is of that, that we're doing. If you look at what we've got in place for uh, the safeguard mechanism, for the delivery of that promise together with the National Reconstruction Fund, there to support existing industries to transition, to support new industries, to take advantage of clean energy and for cheaper power. If mm. you look at the Hydrogen Head Start program, $2 billion in the budget, again, looking at how a place like Wayala, for example, green steel is its future. Now, that has produced steel for 50 years, uh, was turned off after precisely 55 years and 55 days uh, was turned off uh, the coking ovens. How do you power that industry so that you're producing steel in Australia, which is green, using the skilled workforce, using the high-quality magnetite, uh, which is available in abundance with 4 billion tonnes that will last for many decades into the future, and then fixing up 
Port Penarth and so that you can have exporting of, of that. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying you're not one, doing any of it. I'm, one area. Yeah, but what uh, I'm asking is, are you going to do more of it? That we are doing. Well, we are doing more. And uh, the announcement we had, it was a $100 million announcement we had uh, in Wyala together with the state government. There's a vision there as well for the largest electrolyzer when we talk about green hydrogen in the world. I think there's, uh, in a few places, the Pilbara, Gladstone, Wyala, Spencer Gulf area of South Australia, there is an enormous opportunity for Australia to become a renewable energy superpower. The back on track now, the uh, Sun Cable project to export energy uh, to Singapore, Mm. Indonesia, uh, from the, what will be the largest solar plant in the world. All of these things come together with our employment white paper mm. we released yesterday, our fee-free TAFE and what we're doing to train Australians. So my vision is you know, a, a clean energy economy using the advantages that we have, the best solar resources in the world, one of the best wind resources in the world, using the Resources we have under the ground, copper, lithium, uh, vanadium, uh, nickel, all of these uh, critical minerals and rare earths that uh, will be to the, this century what fossil fuels were uh, in, in the past to yeah. help drive Australia's economy and skilling up Australia uh, for those jobs. Now, it fits in as well with our international policy, uh, the work that Nick Moore did for us, developing the Southeast Asia Economic Strategy to 2040. It's no accident we're bringing ASEAN leaders here to Melbourne in March next year uh, to talk about those issues to celebrate Australia's 50th anniversary of that relationship. So it all does tie together our, our energy mix, our resources, our manufacturing uh, with skills and the creation of bodies like we had Infrastructure Australia created uh, last time we were in government. Now we've created Jobs and Skills Australia. What are the jobs of the future of five years, 10 years? How do we train people for them? That's all about positioning Australia just as the Inflation Reduction Act in the US is in part a response to the pandemic. Mm. Um, it's a response to say that uh, nation states need to be more resilient. They need to make more things and need to be able to stand on their own feet uh, because uh, we're vulnerable if we are just uh, relying upon trade that can be disrupted whether through a pandemic or through international conflict or a cybersecurity event. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm, I am very conscious about how all this fits together. Sure. And what is, you'll see is that mm-hmm. very much. More of it? Or? Well, you, you are seeing it, but all with, all, all, all <laughs> I with, feel like we're dancing around all this. With, all with, with that theme. Or with that theme, you, you don't um, you don't need to change tack every every I'm not, I'm not year. Su- no, I'm not suggesting that this would be some unheralded sound the trumpet. No one's ever talked about climate change or the transition in the government. That is not what I'm suggesting. What I'm asking you is, will we see more of it? Will we? Yes. S- okay. And, and and you are, and you're seeing. Uh, you know, we've brought in Greg Combe has joined uh, the public service here to look at particular areas and regions and how they transition to make sure they're not left behind. And I think that the decisions that we make this decade can set Australia up for many decades ahead. And unless we make the right decisions, we'll we'll fall behind. If Mm. we continue to do, you know, what the former government did 22 different energy policies and not land one. What you actually need to do is to have that sense of purpose going forward about seizing the economic opportunities that are there, making sure that the economy doesn't just work for some but works for a majority of the population, that people have that opportunity to benefit 
from economic growth, not the other way around. You know, people working for the economy. We want an economy that works for people is what we want. You've, you've obviously sort of laid out the fundamentals of the transition and Australia's natural advantages or comparative advantages in the transition. But one of the advantages you have as a prime minister is you actually have a progressive parliament at this point. Is that something, you know, is, the, is having a progressive parliament a lever for you over Act 2 to accelerate this transition or to put more bells and whistles around this transition? I'm not suggesting you just discovered it. I'm just well, looking. Well, the, the, uh, the, the parliament isn't a, a tick and flick parliament either and you can have a circumstance whereby uh, obstructionism is put in place in order to get product differentiation. Mm. I mean, the Greens political party opposing the Housing Australia Future Fund for months, which delayed its introduction and its commencement, was completely illogical, completely illogical. And eventually they got there, but that's an example of where you don't necessarily you know, I don't take this parliament for granted mm. and we need to uh, get our legislation through the Senate. But a lot of what we've set up now enables us to act as a government because the framework, the legislation yes, is in is place. in place. Yeah, yeah, and that was very important to secure all of that. So I think it's maybe the answer to the question, are we going to see more of it? Are we no, going it's to? yes. It's yes. And you're seeing it. You saw it yesterday. <laughs> Do you see what you're doing with the tenses there? You'll see more next there? week. No, <laughs> you're, you're seeing it and uh, you'll see more of it next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see more of it next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I travel to the United States, we'll be progressing as well. The agreements that were put in place, which are aimed at how can Australia take advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, as well yeah. for our, in for our industries and, and yeah, so we're working chains. on all of that. Uh, we're working as well to uh, remove trade impediments to China. Uh, we're working importantly with the the ASEAN uh, strategy. Yeah, is I very see, important. Yeah, I see how that all fits together. When you when you made the point, uh, and we're we're really press for time. There's a couple of things I want to get to, but just when you made the point about the Greens and obviously sitting on the housing thing for a period of time, obviously the government increased its offer. Are you saying though, if the government came forward with some sort of Inflation Reduction Act type program, like an enhancement of what you're already doing, are you saying that you're concerned that the Greens had obstructed? Well, we don't know. That's the point. They disrupted the housing package with no justification. I mean, the the increased investment, uh, $2 billion, the social housing accelerator had nothing to do with them. That was uh, material that was negotiated between us and the states about planning laws. They didn't even know about it and they weren't engaged. I'll, I'm always someone who will, when it is possible, put more money into social housing. That wasn't as a result of the Greens political party, I'm the one who put it on the agenda in my second budget reply and received some criticism from some in the gallery saying, why is uh, federal Labor talking about housing? That's not a federal issue. Well, it is for me. My point about you're saying there's a progressive parliament, sometimes it's just a fact that uh, the minor parties are looking for some form of product differentiation and are then looking to try to claim credit for things that are not of their making. Now, if people have a good idea, no matter who's putting it forward, I'm up for it and I meet regularly with the crossbench in this parliament and I think overwhelmingly they are very constructive and we have supported amendments that they've moved in the House of Representatives even though we don't need to in terms of in mm. a strictly numbers sense, we have an absolute majority in our own right. Yeah. But if people have a good idea that, that improves legislation, then we'll vote for it. But you could actually try and build a consensus around something like that looking forward into Act 2, couldn't you? I mean, sure. I, I accept it, it, what you're except saying. Except that the Greens see themselves as competitors with us, with the Labor Party. That That is a part of uh, their... Uh, 
and 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 they of course shouldn't be seen as a homogenous group. Uh, some uh, see outcomes as being more important than others, but you know one of theirs uh, put in writing in an article why the Housing Australia Future Fund was being held up because if it was just passed, we wouldn't be able to have protests and we wouldn't be able to door knock and and that was the motivation very explicitly put forward just as we have had that put forward in my electorate years ago. You might recall an election where someone said they'd rather have uh, Tony Abbott than Bill Shorten as Prime Minister because you get better demos. Well, you know, the truth is there are elements in uh, the minor parties who who do have that position. Mm. Okay, just one thing quickly or two things very quickly. What is your orderly government going to do about banning gambling advertisements? It's grand final weekends this weekend. People will be assailed with this stuff. I think last time you and I talked about it, you said, I find them annoying or words to that effect. Well, they are. But, well, sure, uh, but what are we going to do about it? Well, we've already done a range of things. Uh, we have said there needs to be. Uh, more done. We've considered the report. We're out there consulting uh, about that through Michelle Rowland. But we've already changed. Uh, I mean, the ads have become uh, more obtrusive now, but that's a good thing deliberately because we've changed the tag on the ads. So instead of a benign message, oh, I there's a very explicit mm. message mm. Uh, which is there. So that they're, they're more noticeable that you know, you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's the basis of the business is that you're going to lose and, and saying that rather than just, you know, gambling responsibly at, at the end of ads. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got the register uh, in place as well and there are a range of other measures that we've done uh, online and, and other restrictions that we've done. But we recognise there's more to do and when my orderly government mm, when will we see this uh, works that through come out of the well, orderly when it's, government when it's announced uh, <laughs> is when you'll see it sooner or later no which is when you'll see it when it's announced when it's worked through people we want to make sure that it's got right and uh, that's appropriate that we're consulting okay let's leave it there thank you for joining me thanks Catherine This episode was produced by Miles Herbert. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Thank you to you guys for listening. We'll be back next week. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.